The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 72 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to size a little opinions expressed in the show on my own, on my president of past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So last week's episode was a lot of fun, I got to tell you. I had a, had a blast doing last week's episode. Um, we haven't done that in a while, and so there was a lot of current events to talk about because uh, we had some catching up to do. We had some catching up to do in that regard because... We've been digging into specific topics and just crushing it with our tier one guests for months, months, and we just really haven't had a chance to dig in some of the news too often, and uh, there's a lot to go over, and, and so we're going to do it again today. But uh, my co-host and partner in crime, Tom Pager, joined me last week to uh, talk about a variety of different cybersecurity current events in the news, including the recent reported death of Jerry Cotton, the CEO of Quadriga who died unexpectedly in India on December 9th of last year, holding the keys to $190 million in cryptocurrency. So it's been reported that Cotton held the majority of the $250 million in assets from 115,000 Quadriga users in cold wallets. So he's the only person who held the keys before his death after suffering complications from Crohn's disease during a trip to India to build an orphanage. So we touched on it a little bit, a little bit last week, and as you can imagine, the story keeps getting a little bit more bizarre by the moment. So, and, and as more facts come out, and I think I'm, I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure yet, but I think I might do a TF7 extra on this because, you know, we touched on it, but we didn't cover everything. We didn't cover everything on the story, and uh, we got a lot of feedback last week. People are interested in what's going on with this. So, um, you know, thinking about doing a TF7 extra, uh, and, and look, this, this has got the cryptocurrency investors fuming, right? I mean, one particular king came in, one investor reportedly topped, I think it was like $70 million the person lost. I think it was something like that. But getting back to last week's episode, Tom and I also talked about the possibility of e-voting coming to the U.S. and how the recent government-sponsored bug bounties in Switzerland could impact e-voting in other countries, as well as bug bounties as a business as a whole, really, which prompted me to drop the Encore episode of Task Force 7 Radio last week. It's the Encore. It's the February 2019 Encore episode. 
And it's one of the most listened to episodes in TF7 radio history. It's called, What is the Future of Bug Bounties? And uh, if you're a subscriber, I mean, you get the notification right away that the new episode dropped. And in this case, it's the Encore episode that is one of our more popular shows from some time ago that you might not have listened to yet if you're a new user or a new listener, right? So we dropped it into the TF7 library. That's one of the reasons why it's advantageous to subscribe. But we'll get back to the Encore episode in just a minute. So to wrap up the recap of, of last week's show, we also talked about the scare tactics used by vendors, the effects that the government shutdown has had on the cybersecurity posture of various government agencies. And lastly, we took a look at physical security, a discipline that I think has been sort of pushed aside in a lot of respects as an effective mitigating control moving into the future. So a very cool episode to listen to if you haven't heard it yet. Take a listen when you get a chance. Tune into last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. That's episode number 71 on cybersecurity current events with guest host and chief security officer of BitCo, Mr. Thomas Pagler. So getting back to the February 2019 Encore episode, I, I think, you know, uh, it, it, it was a great episode that we did earlier last year. I did it with Tom. We did it on the future of bug bounties and later the revelations that came out on the situation with Uber at the time. And the show got a huge response from our audience. And since then, you know, we were talking about the, the Switzerland bug bounty uh, that they have on their, or the Switzerland government bug bounty that they have on their e-voting system last week. So I thought it'd be a great encore episode to drop for the month and people would be interested in it because it kind of, you know, shows um, some of the issues that have been going on in the bug bounty business now for, for a while and shows some, some transition and some of the issues that there are some successes and some of the challenges too. So I kicked off the show with an analysis on a new tax surcharge on California companies that really hit a nerve with me at the time. So that's still relative to how I feel today. Like I, I'm just not a, I'm just not a tax everyone to death type of guy. That's just not me. Um, but that, you know, I, I probably won't get that fired up again, you know, for a while, unless some of these socialists that we have around here are trying to sabotage the cybersecurity community in some way, just the way they sabotage the, Hardworking citizens of Queens last week, it was all over the news, right? They blew this big deal about having Amazon come in to put their second headquarters over there in Queens. They were going to give $25,000 or 25,000 jobs in there. They were going to pay at least an average of, I think it was $100,000 or $150,000 a year, um, some of these jobs. I mean, regardless whether it was $100,000 or $150,000, I saw two different numbers, but it's a lot of money. And I think it was going to bring in $27 billion in tax revenue to the city of New York, and they lost it all over a $3 billion Amazon incentive package. I mean, brilliant, right? I mean, just stupid, very stupid. I mean, I think every time Ocasio-Cortez speaks, I think the president of Boston University cringes. That's just my opinion. I suspect that might be the case. Hopefully, she won't have any major influence on any legislation that affects the cybersecurity community. But anyway, I digress. So check out the February 2019 Encore episode, The Future of Bug Bounties of TF7 Radio on your favorite playback medium. It's a great show, folks. So if you're listening to us live right now on Voice America, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. We have a new website, tf7radio.com. I think everyone should check that out. It's much better than the old website. I'm, I'm, I'm liking it. It's not up to date, so I'm just going to throw that out there. There's a couple things that couple episodes that I'm missing. I think I got up to like 67 or 68 episodes loaded right now. We're on 72, so I'll get there. But uh, it's a great it's a great website, and we're going to be doing a lot more with this website uh, in the future. So 
Um, you can get all your favorite playback mediums there. If you just go to the option to subscribe to the show on the, on the top right from the TF7 uh, website, it is, uh, and you can subscribe right there. You scroll down, you can put it in your email address and hit the subscribe button. You can subscribe right to the site. So that's what we prefer you to do because we're going to do a lot more things with the site as the site gets more robust and we'll have a lot of, a lot of great stuff for you. So if you can do that, it's tf7radio.com. Go to the top right, hit subscribe, put your email address in, hit subscribe, and you'll get all the updates. So now there's 10 different options to get your TF7 radio fixed. There was nine, but now there's 10. Castbox. Dot FM. That's castbox.fm is being the new, newest uh, playback medium out there right now. So we're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. The easiest way to find us, if you can't, just, just Google Task Force 7 Radio. You get all your options. Check us out, folks. TF7 Radio playback at your convenience 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. So, got another great show for you this week. Guest host. Tom Pagler is going to be with us again. He's the, he's the co-host of TF7 Radio, also the Chief Security Officer of BitGo. And uh, he's going to be joining me again this week to talk about bug bounties and, and successes and contentious bug bounty discoveries in the news. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, so we're going to go over Israel's voting system and, and, and process that seems to be under attack and in the news uh, quite often as, as their April 2019 elections come up. And then the cybersecurity efforts in the United States uh, and how that seems to be rudderless right now in terms of someone being in charge and someone being able to, like a central coordination point of all the uh, cybersecurity activity that's going on in the government. And lastly, on the third segment, we're going to be going over the Equifax data and asking the question, where did all the Equifax data go? So that should be interesting. You should, you know, stay tuned for the, you know, we're all the way through to the third segment. So we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to unpack all this for you and much, much more. So I'm all jacked up for this episode. Tom, welcome to the show. How are you doing this evening? Great, George. Thanks for having me, man. Hey, look, let's jump right into it. So according to a Valentine's Day article on NakedSecurity.com, Lisa Voss writes that Google paid out a whopping $3.4 million in bug bounties during 2018 uh, through all their bug bounty, uh, I guess, policies and procedures. And I guess they got thousands of people that actually did this. So I think that sort of answers the question that we were asking about months ago on the future of bug bounties. What's your immediate thoughts on that? Honestly, I think they need to, need to spend more. I mean, Google's a huge company. It's actually not that much money when you think about the amount of eyes that, the amount of eyes you're getting on it, right? $3.4 million is not that much money to Google. And you're basically getting these independent views. You're getting you know, people who aren't part of Google every day coming in looking at different I mean, think about how much it would be to just hire a bunch of code reviewers who then become institutionalized and, and, and get into that box, you know, tra trap in that box mentality, right? I, I'm part of the Google box. I only look at it this way. But if you're outside and you're willing to actually using their products and just looking at it different, this is actually not a, a, a big expense. I'm glad to see it going up. Are you saying that working for an, a corporation puts you in a box? <laughs> Say no. No, so. no, I've never seen that before. No way. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so look, let's take a look at what Google's annual bug bounty wrap-up report says, right? The Google Vulnerability Reward Program, they call it their VRP, was launched in 2010. So it's been around for about eight or nine years. And it's, it's geared towards rewarding researchers who uncover bugs in Chrome and other Google products. So since then... They've paid out more than $15 million, and you want them to pay out more, which is, you know, 
I guess they could afford it, right? Yes. So in 2015, Google launched out a, a bug bounty program for Android 2, its mobile operating system. So they have a, a few different products that they're looking at. So Google awarded a total of $3.4 million to 1,319 individuals from 78 countries from what I can make of the report. So the biggest award was $41,000. So it's really broken up into small chunks to all these people while about $181,000 were reportedly donated to charity. So last year, about 1.7 out of the 3.4 million went to bug hunters who found problems in Android or in Google's Chrome browser. Now this begs the question, and you touched upon it before, what would have happened if Google didn't have this program? And what kind of chaos would have ensued if these hundreds of vulnerabilities were not found? I mean, I'm assuming they published this, you know, for people like us yep. to talk about and sort of take this victory lap around for thinking outside the box in regards to the threat and vulnerability program? I see, I think Google does two major things with this, right? Or any company that does this. One is they provide incentive to go look in the first place. So somebody who, um, maybe you're a student, you're someone who's just really into tech, you start to say, you know what, I like to look into things. Um, and now I know if I go look at Google products, maybe I'm someone who uses them a lot, I can go find issues. I know there's a, a reward at the end. The other thing is, there are people who are going to find bugs, just find mistakes, and they're not necessarily someone who is a fraudster now, but if there is no incentive, and I find something and I get nothing out of it, but someone will pay me for it, you're, you're, you're making it so that there is a payment plan for that information. And, and maybe I'm not even someone who wants to get rewarded, but I'm not going to tell you because it's not worth my time, and then it doesn't get found, and then someone else finds it, so you don't get it early. Uh, probably a good analogy, honestly, in that regard would be, you know, when someone, there's a crime that happens or someone goes missing, we offer rewards out there, you know, the police do and people come forward because sometimes it's like, you know, I saw something, but I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to get involved. So might some my, my deal or, you know, Hey, I, I actually <clears throat> would love to have that money. <laughs> I, I live in the community and I probably could find some information out. The police can't, I'm going to go find some information out and go get that reward. So right. I think it kind of does that like, kind of two way thing. And, I think it's good. Otherwise, you have chaos. I mean, because like you said, there's no way to go tell anybody. There's no reward for it. Like, why would I look? And why am I going to tell you? And there's been a lot of this in the news lately. This report just came out after another big tech giant that we know, Apple, confirmed it's going to reward this 14-year-old kid who discovered a group FaceTime surveillance exploit. So they're going to provide the family with compensation for finding the bug as well as, you know, going to help the kids' uh, future education costs, which I think is pretty cool. Did you hear about this? Yeah, no, I think this is absolutely great. This is, this is just a phenomenal thing that that kid definitely has huge potential. You're giving him some money. You're going to make it so he can, you know, go to college if he wants to uh, at least get some, some training. Maybe he's not going to finish. He also has money if he wants to start his own company, maybe take some risks there. But also, like, you're showing not only him but everybody who reads it, there is a way to make money off of being a very good, you know, code reviewer, or, or someone who's into pen testing, red team exercises, like going into security and, and legitimately looking. And it doesn't necessarily even be a security thing. Just finding bugs and fixing them. Bugs don't necessarily mean that there's a security issue. A bug could mean a product just stops working the way it's supposed to work and, and causes customer impact as in it just you know doesn't work right and then they don't want to use it. So there is a huge market for this. And, and this just demonstrates that and, and makes it so everybody in this situation can do this. 
Yeah, so I think it's pretty cool. It's, it's kind of unclear to me if they were originally going to, you know, decide to compensate this kid or not. I was reading an article on appleinsider.com that says they're going to do both. They're going to compensate him and pay for uh, some of his education, which is kind of cool. But his, his mom, her name is Michelle, she, she attempted to warn Apple about the exploit about a week before it became major news. And then, you know, the tweets came out prompting Apple to acknowledge the issue and discovery and, and to temporarily disable the, the function on their system. So it's kind of unclear, you know, how they're going to compensate the family or like how much they're going to do. But if you, if, if you look at their bug bounty program, if it's in within that policy, it could be anywhere from 25,000 to $200,000, man. So that's not, it's not a small amount of money. It's, it could be a large cat or in this sense, it's probably, it's probably towards the lower end. Right. But uh, there's also this other dude named Draven Morris that uh, they actually gave and acknowledged uh, for the discovery as well, as long as grant, uh, for this new, you know, the release notes for the new iOS 12.1.4, but no one's really talking about Morris too much, so I don't know what he did, but he's not getting the attention that the 14-year-old did. So the the exploit was relatively simple to induce. I guess the caller just starts a FaceTime video call with a contact, and then while the call is ringing, they add themselves to the call as the third party by tapping on add person and then entering their own phone number, and if properly executed, the group FaceTime call is started, and the original recipient's audio begins to stream before the call is accepted. So a nice find by a young 14-year-old future entrepreneur. Well, I think a lot of his friends are going to be calling him to go in business, right? Yeah. No, and to your point, like that's the kind of thing that you're in Apple, you're trying to think, make things work. That's not something that's easy sometimes to find when you're back in, a, I'll use my terminology again, back in that corporate box, right? You're trying to push out a product, you're trying to make things work. You're probably thinking of like security vulnerabilities in a different way. This kid thought outside the box, right? He had to be removed to do it. What's really great about this though is, you know, this kid applies for an internship, not just at Apple, anywhere, putting down this experience. You know he's going to get picked up by pretty much any yeah, company. He's got, true, right? Yeah, this is just, this is just awesome because this kid has a potential now to be one of the future leaders who's going to like make sure that we secure stuff. I like the way you think, bro. I like the way you so look, I, it's not all Shangri-La in the bug bounty world, right? And I just kind of want to, you know, talk about the flip side of the coin with the bug bounties a little bit. I mean, there's been a lot of successes lately, I think, that have been in the news and, you know, people have been sort of enjoying that success and companies have been taking a victory lap with their programs. But I was also reading this article on February 6th on Engadget.com and it reminded me of some of the potential problems, right? It's the article written by Chris Holt about an individual named Linus Hines. And that's not, that's, that's his name, Linus Hines, who apparently is all pissed off at Apple because of their bug bounty policy. He's pissed. Right? And he's talking to anybody that'll listen. So this guy, he goes out and he discovers this exploit that can expose passwords on a Mac OS system. And he's not going to share any of the details of the bug with Apple in protest of Apple's bug bounty policies. He's not sharing his toys. They're his. And he's not playing with anyone. So this dude went and posted a demo video of the Keysteel exploit uh, last week that seemed to grab passwords from login and system key change without requiring administrator privileges. And he's, oh, he's doing this all with a simple clickable button. So it works on the latest version of Mac OS, though it doesn't seem to affect items stored in iCloud's keychain, just to be clear. So this guy's beef is simply this, man. Linus won't help Apple patch the exploit because its bug bounty program only pays out to researchers for disclosing bugs on iOS and not Mac OS. It's like this dude is in love with Mac OS, right? He loves Mac OS. It's not getting enough love and attention from Apple, and he's pissed. 
So he says, and he's talking to Forbes now, he says, finding vulnerabilities like this one takes time. And I just think that paying research is the right thing to do because we're helping Apple to make their product more secure. So, look, I don't disagree with him. It takes time and he's, he's doing the right thing. Right? He's doing a very noble yeah. thing out there. But it, it, to me, I don't know if I agree with Linus on this. I mean, surely he's got no obligation to help Apple and remediate the bug. I'm not saying he has to. Right? But I'm saying that Apple doesn't have any obligation to offer bug bounty rewards on any of their products if they don't want to. He can't, they can't just you know, be forced to you know, give money if, to someone if they find a, you know, a problem or a vulnerability in their system. And just because Linus claims that he put a lot of effort into this researching the vulnerability, right, doesn't mean that he gets to demand the award in my mind. And, and herein lies the problem. And I think this exposes other things that we talked about before when, you know, I guess, I guess bug, uh, bug bounty hunters, they start to think they're in charge. They yeah. start to think that they're the ones who are calling the shots. And I think this, again, exposes a weakness in a liability in these bug bounty programs, even though, as I stated, Mac OS isn't part of Apple's policy, right? So here we go. If a researcher finds a vulnerability on a product under a pre-existing bug bounty policy, and then extracts the data from that company. I know we went through this before. And they are not authorized to view or possess that data. Number one, are company execs required to notify regulators? And number two, should the researcher be charged under 1030 for technically stealing the data, right? I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I, mean I don't know what these bug bounties say with the, the writing in here. Uh, you know, the small print says in some of these uh, bug bounty programs. But this sounds like more like a ransom to me than a bug bounty. I mean, what do you think? All right. There's a lot there. So I'm going to try to uh, chunk this up. So I think number one, you're right. I mean, Linus uh, can be frustrated, but they publicize their bug bounty program. They said they don't do Mac OS. Uh, you know that. Now, if you are someone who found it, you, you like it, great. Do it. Call Apple. Let them know that you found something. Say, I'd love to be paid for it. And I'll, I'll show you. If they say no, say, okay, great. Thanks. I uh, hope that doesn't get found by anybody else. And just walk away. Don't do anything more with it. They know it's there. If Apple was smart, they'd find a way to either pay a bug bounty or hire you in to do something with it. Uh, but you have to back away at that point because you can't go exploit it. You can't go tell other people because now you're causing, you're, you're causing it to be, you know, if, if he goes and gives us the fraudsters or something like that, that's, that's bad. That, that is now crossing Obviously, right? But so if Obviously. he just takes the data, right? Now, now, goes, well, if he takes yeah. this, well, you know what? I have a day. Now you're going to give me 15,000. I want 20. Like, I mean, where is you can't take, I mean, is, You can't is, take the data, though. That's right. to take that data under the book? No. No, you're not. You're not saying, well, they're saying they're going to pay him, right? Does he have a point? So, okay. So I, I think that, like, he cannot take data away like you can't go and like uh, okay if i find an exploit and then i i actually take the a step to actually remove some kind of data customer data something like that i violated the law at that point that is 1030 violation you cannot if you find an exploit you need to stop once you realize it's there you need to go tell people about it and you need to back away you cannot take the data once you do that you're you're, you're actually you're not a, a, you know you're not acting on behalf of apple at that point you're not acting on behalf of that company you have no right to that data you need to back away so if you, if you take any data right there, you've already violated the law. If you have information about an exploit and you offer it to them and, and you don't like the agreement, you could say, you know what, I, I don't want it, never mind, I'm not going to give it to you, and you just back away. Like, I'm not going to tell anybody else about it. I'm not telling you about it. You don't tell me. You know, like, that's fine because right. like, uh, I'm not I have no obligation to tell you what I found. I just can't go tell the people who will exploit it. I can't go, you know, you just got to back away. And that's okay. And, you know, that I think is okay. I mean, if I come into you and say, you know, I want to do this, but I, I don't feel like you're going to pay me enough, 
right, you know what? I just don't want to do business with you. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just walking away. I don't get any money in my pockets. You don't, you know, you don't get to know about the, the vulnerability. Hopefully it never comes to fruition and you're, and you're fine. Or if it does, maybe you call me back and say, Hey, is this the one you're talking about? How do we fix it? Um, but you know, at that point you can't take the data. If you really think there's something significant, you could call them and the, the bug bounty does not uh, outline exactly what it is. Try to work a contract with them coming in as a contractor or something like that. Now you're officially working for Apple or the company, and then you can go do more stuff because you're doing it under controlled circumstance in, within the company on their tools. You know, maybe you are going to look at data and stuff like that, but you're going to do it within their data governance, you know, regulations, all that stuff. So it's all legitimately done. Otherwise, you're either violating laws or you're, um, you're, you're like you said, you're almost holding them up for ransom. That's not okay. You know, I, obviously, I, I agree with you 100%, I, but I'm not sure that these bug bounty policies articulate exactly what's appropriate and what isn't. You know, and I, I, think, think, I think this is evidenced by the problem that Uber had in like last year. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And people need to start looking at the bug bounty policies. Yeah. I think that you need to be putting them online so people see them. They need to understand what they are. You, they should be part of the whole risk and governance that you do, you know, looking at things saying, okay, if I'm going to go into a bug bounty pro uh, program, what will I pay for? What are the things that I'm looking at? I think it's always good to say if you have something that's not defined here, here's who you should contact to talk to us. You should always have the ability to go and look and see if there's something you missed. But you should make it very clear that, you know, taking any kind of customer data or our data is not allowed. If you, if you do find a vulnerability that you believe could result in data right. loss, data, something like that. Because the, yep. 1030 has specific um, language in there in terms of intent, in terms of yep. nation, right? Um, yep. things that can be interpreted uh, different ways depending on, you know, what, how people are engaged with each other, that kind of thing. So I think it's, you know, it needs to be laid out in a really, really good sign. I don't think people have been thinking about all they've been thinking about is, you know, um, uh, I guess it's the opposite side of the corporate environment where there is a little bit less structure. <laughs> when, I agree. Yeah, right. So, you know, so that's a senior problem. But, all right, folks, we've got to take a little time to go to commercial break, but we're right back. To talk more cybersecurity with guest host of TS7 Radio and Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Tom Pager. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TS7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes, and then guest host Tom Pager and I will be right back to talk about Israel's voting system under attack, how no one is in charge of cybersecurity in the United States right now, and the big question of the day, where did all the stolen Equifax data go? Wherever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The rules of enterprise security have changed. Your employees work remotely. Their devices access corporate data in the cloud. Phishing and other threats are intensifying. Traditional perimeter-based security is no longer enough to keep your enterprise safe. You need a new approach that protects your organization from the outside in. Lookout Post Perimeter Security enables protection at the endpoint and establishes continuous conditional access to data based on risk so you can protect your mobile workforce against phishing and other new world threats. Now you can secure the post-perimeter world. Visit lookout.com forward slash task force seven to learn more today. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at TaskForce7Radio.com. Again, that's TaskForce7 with the number 7, Radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with guest host, TF7 Radio, and Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Mr. Tom Pager. So, Tom, oddly enough, after our discussion last week on the Switzerland government's bug bounty for their e-voting system, Bloomberg came out with an article yesterday that claimed Israel's voting system is completely susceptible to a cyber attack. So they didn't say it in those exactly words, but they're saying, hey, look, there's a lot of concern here. And if you read uh, a lot of the articles that are out there, they're saying that, hey, look, we're getting owned everywhere. So now Israel, uh, they're, they're widely viewed as one of the most fortified government systems in the world, I, I would say, when it comes to cybersecurity. They have a huge reputation when it comes to cybersecurity as being at the forefront of innovation. But uh, according to the Israeli Democracy Institute Research Center, 
responsibility for protecting the vote is divided among at least nine different entities, leaving coordination and collaboration at the heart of any cybersecurity challenge that they have. So this is already starting to sound very familiar, I'm sure, to a lot of our listeners out there. And we're going to get, we'll get there, right? We're going to get there. Let's, let's talk this out. So as we unpack this, I thought the article was a little bit confusing and it was kind of poorly written, but it still exposes a major concern about hackers and intelligence agencies being able to manipulate elections of free societies. And although it wasn't broken down this way, I kind of see it this way. I I interpret the article to define two very different and disparate problems with uh, election tampering. Number one, intelligence agencies to me seem that they're launching these public influence operations on social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter to spread misinformation and try to influence voters to vote in a way that they see advantageous to their own agenda, right? So they want something to happen. They think this one one person may uh, uh, be more beneficial to their own agenda than another. And a lot of times, to be honest with you, my personal opinion is they just want to cause internal strife. They don't really care who wins. They just want everybody to fight each other. And that's kind of what's going on here in the United States, to my opinion. So number two, actually compromising the voting system itself through these unknown or maybe even known vulnerabilities and altering the vote count or the, or the recount of votes in an election in some cases by successfully altering the outcome of the election, which would be a total nightmare, right? It'd be a total nightmare. And this is very serious business. And I suspect could lead to a great amount of internal strife, right? So on the public influence front, let's talk about number one first. These, the volunteers over there in, in Israel have already painted a really dismal picture of the situation ahead of their April elections. They're already claiming that they've already uncovered hundreds, hundreds of fake accounts with links to the usual suspects like Iran and Russia, although Russia is just, you know, I have a big article and I think I read the headlines and it says, uh, dear uh, uh, Israel, please do not read the Israeli papers. We are not hacking your election. <laughs> it was sort of like ridiculous. And even Saudi Arabia is sort of jumping into the mix here. And, and it also mentioned that they have their own domestic political parties that are actually starting to try to get in and tamper with these systems. And they're being suspected as some of the culprits here. So it's really serious. I mean, in all, Israeli officials have persuaded Facebook and Twitter to remove hundreds, hundreds of these fake accounts and take down about a dozen network networks uh, that are distributing uh, disinformation over there. So it's crazy stuff going on. Now, for actually, um, uh, you know, talking about what to do about this, there's a guy over there. His name is, is, is Gabby uh, Wyman. And he authored a report on cyber manipulation for the International Institute for Counterterrorism at IDC Herzilia. I think I got that around, pronounced that right. It's a university. Uh, said basically, it's the government's responsibility to be more proactive in the situation. So he said this to say this is the responsibility of Facebook or Google or Twitter to get to solve this problem is useless because they don't have the manpower. Or the motivation. Now, the motivation to me could mean a lot of different things. So what do you think, Tom? Do you think that the government should have to come in and ask Facebook and Twitter to deactivate all these fake accounts trying to influence their election? I mean, shouldn't these social media companies uh, be doing this without having to be asked to do it or told to do it by some government? I think there's some areas where the government could say you need to do things. I believe, uh, like looking at laws, right? So I think in California, we've got some laws around you can't set up fake emails, uh, fake accounts for the, the 
the purpose of hiding your identity, right? So if, if any of these are coming, that's violations. So right there, I think that's where the government should get involved, saying, okay, what, what, what laws do we have in place that you need to try to enforce uh, social media accounts? Uh, so, or social media companies, right? What, what kind of laws, rules? And, and, and keep it at that. Because I think if you start going in saying, uh, you need to do this, this, and that, there's, you have to make sure there's laws that you're following. And what are you following? If you just say, oh, you got to go remove fake accounts. Honestly, at the end of the day, like, I can go out and, uh, you know, uh, not through social media, but I can go tell people whatever I want, stuff like, you know, uh, influence uh, the, the vote. Anyway, I kind of want to. I, I think it's too nebulous, right? But if you look at it and say, look, the rules are we just need to know who the people are on the other side because there's laws that say that, then you can start enforcing that. So what do you think about the motivation piece? I mean, you know, I can, I can interpret that a bunch of different ways, but he's saying that Facebook and Twitter don't really have the motivation to correct the problem. But that's like insinuating that they, they don't want to solve the problem. I actually totally disagree with that statement, actually, because I think social media companies are mostly based on freedom of speech and that their customers tend to value that. Like, that's what they want. Um, you know, is in the best interest to find ways to ensure that their, their services are legitimate and not unduly manipulated. So I think that that's the, the most important thing um, for them, you know? So uh, I, I don't see that that motivation is not happening. I mean, do you really think that Twitter is concerned about people thinking or knowing that their, 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 their systems are unmanipulated in certain ways? I mean, I don't know. I, I think that, like, <laughs> no, I, I think what we need... I'm having trouble with that a little bit. I mean, I go on to Twitter and it's just, you know... Yeah, but, but I, think, I think that there's something that like, people are looking for. This. So I think what's going to actually end up happening at some point is we'll probably see transition to social media companies that have some kind of um, user review system. So like eBay did back in the early days, right? So I'm going to go buy something from somebody uh, online and send them money and then they're going to send me the product, right? How did you know that? Um, over time, you got good reviews. You started to look like, you know, you built credibility, stuff like that. Um, if you look at companies like Reddit that are coming up, you know, there's a lot of like vote upvoting and downvoting. So if things look bogus, you just downvote them and they don't make the, the stream. So I think we're going to see a move to that just naturally because I think that the consumers want to feel like they trust what's out there. And I, I think right. some of the other ones you're talking about, Twitter and Facebook, are a little bit more they were the first to market kind of in, in social media. And I think that we're starting to see social media kind of find a way to um, add the protection layer like eBay did. Right. So when it, when the first dot com bubble, like some, you know, burst, I think some of the original early auction sites, things like that were not um, having these you know, net, um, controls in place. And then you have something like eBay come along and suddenly it's legitimate. You're able to, to, to actually, uh, sell goods on it because it actually works. I, I think there's going to be a motivation that's just going to naturally happen from the consumers demanding it. So again, the government, I think right now involvement should just be at the law, like what, what laws are you violating? And then know that the motivation will come because we're going to get frustrated. I don't want to hear, if I start to realize that most of the posts are fake and they're being manipulated by a foreign government, I'm just going to start you know, turning off. I'm not going to listen. This is all true, right? So but. It should the United States government just set up a special team to monitor social media to identify these fake accounts? Forget whose who's responsibility it is or say if, you know, say Twitter is motivated and Facebook is motivated to do this, like you say, isn't there really too much at stake to put our elections in their hands? 
I mean, shouldn't it, it, so the idea being, yeah, okay, let's motivate them to do as much, you know, encourage them to do as much as they possibly can on their end. But shouldn't, you know, the United States government to make sure, to make absolutely sure to do everything they possibly can, set up a, a special team to monitor social media for these fake accounts and bots being able to use to, to manipulate our elections? I think they should set up a special team. I don't know if it should be social media focused. It should just be voter, potential voter fraud in general. Just like what are the things that are, are doing it? And I also believe um, one of the issues we have is, as we talked about last episode, like we need to set this up and make it a priority as in like some kind of cyber unit that actually doesn't get furloughed, right? So, I mean, we're saying that this is so important, but we just furloughed over cyber experts, right? We, we, we're not even close to looking at social media itself. We, we need the cyber team that's dedicated yeah, that's, first. That's a whole nother episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I'm saying is, I totally agree with you that we need yeah. to think you can't even specialize at this point. And I wouldn't recommend it. Let's just get somebody holistically looking and saying, what is the, what is the risk around voter fraud period? Like, is it yeah. protecting the machines? Is it, you know, is it whatever it be? And, and then, you know, then start looking at different things. Yeah. I mean, I look, I'm, I'm all for, look, you set up the team voter fraud in general. I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, I think voter fraud going on out there. I think, uh, I think Texas just found a whole bunch of people that voted that, that shouldn't have voted. Um, but, you know, I think, um, you know, this could be a, obviously a piece of that. And I think that has to be, this has to be, there has to be some focus on this. I just don't think we can put our elections in the, in the hands of, of Twitter and Facebook anymore. But in defense of some, the, some of these companies, right, from a technology perspective, I think the challenge is significant considering there's hundreds of millions of users on these platforms. I mean, hundreds of millions of yeah. users. And so do you even think they have the capability to adequately identify and remove some of these accounts? I mean, if, say if they're using artificial intelligence and robotics and the latest technology still... Still, it's a challenge in my mind. What do you think? Well, I mean, you know, and I think also um, not just that's a challenge, but it's also what if they start getting it wrong? What if what if they do put something out there and we ask them to do it and they start and they filtering? Do. They do get it wrong. That's a good. Yeah, point. that's, that's I mean, what I'm saying, they right? Get it wrong a lot, I think. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So so now that you're suddenly blocking someone who legitimately was trying to talk, and that can actually impact our elections. So you have someone who you know really is a legitimate U.S. Uh, you know, uh, representative trying to say their point of view to an election and then suddenly they get blocked. Now what happened? Did, did our, did our private companies, uh, unduly affect our ele- elections, not intentionally, but because they suddenly blocked, you know, let's just say that I- I'm arguing for some kind of, you know, I don't know, water conservation and you're, you're, you're opposed to me, right, George. And you're saying, no, we should, <laughs> we should spill water everywhere and not, not keep water, whatever it be. And then suddenly, uh, they, they identify me, uh, incorrectly and think that I'm actually, you know, some nation state. And then you win by a landslide or win by a slight margin. And you look back and say, well, wait a minute. Like I, I was absolutely blocked and I didn't get as much media coverage as George did. And there's a lot of rules around that. Right. All right. So let's move on to the second uh, topic here. The number two that I mentioned before, then there's this possibility of the voting platform itself being compromised and tampered with to change the outcome of the election. And, and the accusations and rumors are already rolling in Israel. So there, there, are, there are suspicions that the primaries in Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's party last week were compromised. And the party ordered a recount following complaints of discrepancies in the number of ballots cast versus the number of voters, which seems to me like that would be a problem. But they denied a hack and they said the votes were tabulated in a closed computerized system. But there's this tech reporter out there, and I don't have any more details um, there's a couple more articles out there uh, about this in a newspaper called the, the Harrods. I think is how you pronounce it. He, he is also a, a web 
developer, this guy. So he's a tech reporter, he's a web developer, and he claims that there was a serious security breach that exposed the results to tampering. So now in Israel, like here in the United States, the party lines are divided by only a small amount of votes, right? So any movement in either direction by meddling with the e-voting system could change the entire course and future of the country, right? And that's by no stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, this could definitely happen, and it could even affect world events for years to come. And if proven afterward, I think people would get really pissed. If someone gets elected and it was proven that it was the system was hacked, it was manipulated, and they shouldn't have won that election, and that person doesn't want to you know, leave office, look, I, I see that being as a serious internal problem. I could, you know, you, you even lead to conflict like uh you know so i don't know this is a scary thought tom and what, what are your thoughts i mean i i i mean i absolutely agree with you this is this is like one thing for certain is that we have to do something because the vulnerability of our election system and the lack of confidence in our ability to hold free and secure elections is ripping this country apart even even if it happened right yeah, yeah even even if uh it would just take a current president right now i'm not saying whether or not you believe or not people think that there is Voter manipulation, right? So now there's people who believe that he was elected and shouldn't have been. There are some people who believe he should. So that's that's a that's a, a fight right there. Um, you know, then there's the whole idea of because even thinking that it might not have been right, especially with the margins that we're so close on, causes half the country to be upset. And you know, vice versa, if it if it happens in the next one, you know, it can go the other way. And this is just not good. So I, I do agree with you. Something has to be in place. We have to start showing some confidence. We have to start showing that we take it serious. I know I'm being a dead horse here, but like, no, needs to listen to this. We got the accusations in Israel. We got the Australian Parliament was hacked last week. We got everyone screaming here about Russian interference in our elections. I mean, what's the? We're furloughing. We're furloughing our cybersecurity team. I mean, it just gives me heartburn every time you say it. It's like a total gut punch, right? It's like we're trying to fix this stuff, right? Yeah, to your point, it's like we haven't even taken the step yet to even say it's a priority, and that has to come first, and then we can start dealing with these things. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, I'm just hoping that we start moving in that direction. Yeah, I mean, what's it going to take for the U.S. government to take on a special project to protect our voting? I, 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 unfortunately, with the U.S. government, we've seen it time and time again. It's usually a catastrophic event that lets us, you know, and then we Horrible. overreact and we become the best at it. Horrible. Yeah, sadly. Sadly, for once, for once should, I just want to see yeah. it get out in front of it. Right? For just once, I mean, you know, it's like the they get upset because they, you know, it's the cop that drives down the street that who, who knows how many you know, uh, crimes that he prevents, right? Yep. But, but, but this is the situation. We, we got to get out in front of it. And if it doesn't happen, that's, that's great. That means we did our job, right? We just can't sit here and wait for this catastrophic event to happen. I know one thing for certain. We got to do something about it because the vulnerability of our election system and the lack of confidence and our ability to hold free and secure elections is ripping this country apart. We gotta do something about it. All right, folks, we gotta take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. Tom and I will be right back to talk about why no one's in charge of cybersecurity in the United States right now, and why the stolen data from the Equifax breach is being compared to the lost city of Atlantis. That's right. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skill shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, Consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with my guest host of TF7 Radio and Chief Security Officer at BitGo, Mr. Thomas Pageler. So, Tom, I want to continue to, you know, talking about uh, some of the things that we were speaking about in, in the prior segments but I want to shift gears a little bit to the fact that, you know, you know, Israel was having this problem in the e-voting systems. They had nine different uh, entities in their government that were in charge of securing this voting system. But Israel is not the only country who's struggling to figure out who's in charge when it comes to cybersecurity. I mean, we got the same problem over here in the United States. And let's start out with the fact that we got rid of our cyber czar last year and that there's no central coordinating point at the White House for all of our cybersecurity efforts going on and a multitude of different agencies in the government. Now, I, I personally feel that this is a problem. Uh, I didn't like getting rid of the Cyrus R. I didn't think that was such a great idea. I kind of feel like it's an offense without a quarterback, and we all know how that would go. So, I mean, this continues to be a concern throughout our industry, but I feel like there isn't any consensus either, right? I feel like, you know, just like anything uh, in technology, for whatever reason, you ask two technologists the same question, you'll never get the same answer ever, right? Like you can't get anybody to agree on anything in, in, in technology for some reason, but like I just feel that there's not a common uh, consensus for a solution to the problem. So just last week, there was this article written by Joseph Marks of the Washington Post that reported that Senate committee leaders worry that no one's in charge of our overall cybersecurity strategy here in the United States. The topic keeps coming up. 
And just like the report coming out of Israel on securing their, their, their voting system, responsibility for the nation's cybersecurity is spread piecemeal throughout the government without a single person or agency being in charge. And that creates dangerous gaps, I think, that U.S. adversaries could exploit to hack the government or critical infrastructure. Now, I think some of the people here were clamoring that, you know, you know, banging that drum too loud and making too much of a point out about it. And you can see that it was just politically motivated. But if we just want to talk from a business perspective, and that's what this show is, right, we're on the business channel. Uh, this is a business show. I just think that someone needs to be in charge. And if we want to talk about it reasonably, I think these, these two lawmakers are onto something. So there's two lawmakers that are taking the problem to task. There's the Homeland Security Chairman, Ron Johnson, and Chair of the Armed Service Committee, uh, Cyber Panel, Mike Rounds. And, and, they're, and they're mulling over how they might create a centralized government authority to tackle the cybersecurity challenges facing the United States today. So look, Tom, I gotta applaud these two guys uh, for trying to do something about this problem. Places that they own the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, um, you know, championing this, you know, I think if they get the, if they can get some momentum here and get some funding, I'd love to see that, you know, cybersecurity within the government starts looking at bug bounty programs. Like we, we talked about, you know, seeing other governments doing looking at the voting system from a, you know, offering bug bounties for that. Um, you know, actually making critical staffing classification for cyber experts. So they don't get furloughed. And then I think you could do a competitive program to recruit talent, at least young talent, you know, start offering free schooling or maybe debt forgiveness. So we get them in young. So basically, hey, you get a four-year degree, you have four years after, or if you have school debt or something like that, we'll pay for, you know, every year you're here, we'll pay a quarter of it off, something like that. So you get these people trained early, they start to learn, you get really good talent in. And then what they'll do is they'll probably leave some of them four or five years in, but they're going to go into private industry and lead the private sector security, which would then align with the government. So I think that this is a great step in the right direction. All right, so you got these three major departments to play here. Let's let's just let's just break this down. Let's unpack this a little bit more, right? So you got you got DHS, you got DOJ, and you got the, the DOD, right? Homeland Security, Justice, and Defense. So right now, for the most part, DHS has the primary authority for all the civilian cybersecurity, while the Pentagon, the Defense Department, manages the military side and basically any type of offensive operations that are authorized against other people outside the United States, right? Where do you think the central authority should lie for cybersecurity in the United States? Because you know all about the turf wars here. You and I are in the yeah. Secret Service, right? You know all about the turf wars that go on. It's just a total nightmare. Where, where should we just put this and say, okay, you're in charge and that's it. Everybody's coordinating around this central authority. I think that it should be centralized out of DHS, and that's because it's a civilian organization and it has civilian oversight. And the idea is homeland security as in like the, the, the defense, right? So what we say is, let's get a really good defense because that's what we should be doing first. Then they should coordinate with the Department of Defense, the DOD, on the offense. Because I think the offense would come out of the military. So basically, it's, it's DHS until we say, you know what, this is pretty bad. Now we need to respond with an offense. And that becomes like an act of a war or some kind of like, um, you know, campaign, you know, a strike. And so we treat it just like anything else, right? Uh, we're going to protect our homeland until we go, you know what? This is pretty bad. It's a nation state. Okay, DOD, now we're going we're gonna to bring you in. And I think the Department of Justice is mentioned, but I think you just, you know, when there's criminal aspects and stuff, they can you know, help with laws, things like that. But not everything's going to be criminal. So I think uh, you just mirror it like anything else, right? We, we have uh, criminal activities come. We have police forces and stuff like that to protect inside. 
when it starts getting bad enough and we say, okay, we need to bring the big guns in, we go to the military. And I think you just set it up that way. Yeah, I mean, there was just an article came out that just slayed the Defense Department in terms of the defensive posture they have in cybersecurity. They're great on offense, but they got the worst defense. Yeah, uh, they should not be doing defense. Yeah, it's not yeah. what they do. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's yeah, right. And so I, I, I was reading that, and, um, you know, I, I think there's consensus on, on that, unfortunately. <laughs> there's nothing else I can get consensus on, but that, yeah. is, that is something that people, I sort of think, is – is happening, and even people in the defense department look. They, yeah. they, they, they we gotta, we gotta uh, improve. We gotta improve. Well, our, I mean, think about this. Think about the Secret Service, right? Secret Service really is to protect, right? So when 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 you when you want you know someone protecting you, you, you hire Secret Service agents who've been trained over and over and over to respond, flare out, you know, get get the situation resolved. And then there are, there's a counter assault team, but they also rely on some other teams to like kind of go engage the threat, right? So you're either on the on the protection side, and when when you know you're doing what you need to protect, and you say, you know what, they keep coming at us, we need to go go right to the threat, bring in a, a team that's really good at that, as in the Department of Defense, as in our military, and say, okay, we're going to continue to defend, but this is getting pretty pretty hard here. Why don't you go take out that that threat for us? Right. Right. No, and I tend to agree, and I have a lot of confidence, a lot of confidence in our in our uh, the Department of Defense in terms of their offense. I agree, yeah. absolutely agree, and I, I think to your point, they they that's what they want to do. That's what they're better at. Our military is a strong military that goes out and, and you know takes takes names and you know takes charge, and, and they're not really good at like defensive things without a plan and you know trying to do something. When you have a clear mission, like go take that target out, they're much better at that. So let's talk about this uh, cyber czar for a second. Like, do you think we should reinstitute the role of the cyber czar so we can have someone in charge of, at the White House sort of coordinating all these? Nah, actually I don't. I, I think we got rid of the cyber czar. It's a, uh, I, I'm going to differ with you on this. I think it's good because I think what we should do is elevate the role. We should start thinking, should this be either a secretary of, you know, uh, information technology and security, or is it, should we do like an undersecretary at DHS? So like basically – you know, put it at a cabinet level as in like secretary instead of czar, right? Because like, what's, what is a czar? What is that equivalent to? I think what you do is you look at it and say, okay, let's align this with like, um, you know, the secretary of- Well, you're saying uh, the same defense. thing. It's semantics. You're just putting someone in charge with a different name. I agree. Yeah. So somebody <laughs> should be there. But, 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 but what I'm saying, let's not do that anymore. Because cybersecurity czar, like where did it, what, what, what authority did they have, right? Let's, let's put it in DHS. Like we have a secretary of Department of Homeland Security. Let's get, you know, uh, a deputy secretary of Homeland Security, you know, in charge of cyber or something like that. So it's like it is a, you know, cabinet level appointed person who really takes us on. If we decide at some point it's going to get big enough that it becomes its own agency at some point, maybe that will happen. I don't like new agencies. You and I were at Treasury and then became part of Homeland Security. And when you're a new agency, you have no funding. You have, like you said, no political poll. Uh, I don't know if it should be. Well, that's probably why they called it a czar, because they didn't want to create a new agency with a whole bunch of bureaucrats. But that's what I'm saying. I, I think if we get right. it to a secretary level, like an undersecretary, fine. something like that. That's so what you, I'm saying. You want to elevate it even further, which is fine with yeah, me. Yeah. Somebody needs to be in charge is the point. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't want it at the White House. I want, it, I want it in an apartment that is, like, if you say Department of Homeland Security, you defend us now. You're, you're in charge of this. Then you, you put this role together. You say, okay, here is the person making all the decisions on InfoSec, cybersecurity for us on defense. And then at Department of Defense, you take an undersecretary of defense and say, you are the undersecretary of defense who's in charge of cyber from a DOD level. And then obviously you have the general in charge of cyber command. Now you've got really good structure and you've got these high ranking people who are really in prestigious positions, you know, defending us, uh, 
from cyber attacks and then coordinating an offensive cyber attack. That's a good, you know, having someone there with some teeth behind what they say yep. is, is, is not going to be a bad thing. Right. And yeah, I, agree. That's, that needs to happen. I mean, so let's, let's just transition into another subject here. I want to talk about before we, before we wrap up here on our, our third segment, let's shift gears for a minute. Dude, I want to know where is all the data from the Equifax breach? This is getting kind of spooky, man. It's gone. It just disappeared. It's like kind of say, poof, gone. Where is it? No, the fact that we have, haven't seen any fraud really associated with this really scares me. And it, I, I it really do spooky, think it, man. yeah, this is, this is someone took it for the big data that it is. And I think this is evidence that either a really strong organized crime syndicate or an Asian state has done this to help them build up a database on who we all are. And, you know, I think about it, maybe it's some kind of, maybe it's something no one's even thought of, like some type of massive attack coordinated with some type of physical. I mean, it could be yep. a variety of different things it could be used for, right? But so there was this great article uh, by my friend and CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. You know, Kate. Yep, she's great. And uh, she wrote this article last week on the Equifax breach. So essentially she's saying it's been 17 months since the September 7th, 2017 breach where the data of 143 million people vanished into the cyber ether, right? So never to be seen again, just gone, right? And so Kate went out and talked to a bunch of experts because she's interested to know what's going on here. She talked to intelligence officials. She talked to dark web data hunters, and she even talked to Equifax to discover where they expect the data has gone and what it is being used for. And the prevailing theory that she came back with is that the data was stolen by a nation state for spying purposes, not by criminals looking to cash in on stolen identities. So there's a variety of different theories out there of what spying purposes is or what they want to do with it. We just started talking about it a little bit. So just when you thought life was hard enough, right? You got all this stuff you got to deal with on a daily basis. You're in the grind. You're working your butt off every day. You know, you're trying to get, get ahead. You're doing whatever you can for your children, your family, and future generations. And now you've got to worry about foreign governments <laughs> snooping into every facet of your life, right? You've got to sit there and think about, well, shit, man, what are they looking at? Like, what, are they, what could they be doing? And does this change the seriousness of this breach to you? I mean, because in a lot of respects, this is much more serious than fraudsters trying to make a buck, right? Yep. No, I mean, unfortunately, I think the genie is out of the bottle on this one. We can't put it back, right? I mean, like, this data is gone. So I think there's two things we need to do. One is we need to start locking down future data so that if, a, if it is a nation state or someone who's really trying to learn about us can't continue to populate that data because what you want is more live data to keep it going. So at least maybe we can protect future generations. That's number one. Number two, we need to start really thinking about every type of attack that can come from this. Like, you know, like you said, if you're going to go, um, this could be uh, a, a cyber weapon that you can coordinate with something else could really take out our economy, right? You, you suddenly just absolutely take over everyone's accounts and start manipulating stuff. And then there's so much fraud going on. We can't tell what legitimate transactions are from, you know, non-legitimate. That could be a huge, huge hit on us. Oh, well, you just start up opening credit chaos. in people's financial names. Financial chaos. Uh, exactly. Like, can you imagine you're, you're, you're a financial company and it's just, you cannot tell what a legitimate application is versus a non-legitimate application because they, they both are answering exactly the same information, have all the same data. So I, Tom Page, I want to go open a credit card and eight other people who are reporting to me are also saying they want to open a credit card. And we all look identical and you can't tell us apart. Yeah, and I mean, it's happening times 100 million. Connecticut yep. attack, right? I mean, yep. you know, that could be a huge problem. 
huge problem. That's just, that's just one area. I mean, like I haven't thought, I haven't spent a lot of time on this. What other kind of attacks? So we just need to start preparing for that, figuring out what we would do. How would we stop things? How would, how would we, you know, if our fraud, you know, account fraud, fraudulent account opening rates, you know, suddenly tripled, like how would we handle it? We quadrupled, hundredfold, whatever. And then start thinking of everything. Like if, if people started getting, you know, bank accounts locked out, things like that. Like what, what would, what would in incremental increases in those things do? And everybody should start planning for how would we respond to that? Yeah. So I think this situation is getting very serious. I mean, so one of the prevailing theories in Kate's article, and, and it's not too foreign to us. Yep. Right, is that foreign governments who stole the Equifax data are probably combining this information with other stolen data and then analyzing it using artificial intelligence and machine learning to figure out who's likely to be or to become a spy for the United States government. And, you know, you don't have to have an extravagant imagination to think about what happens from there. Right. So, for instance, you could easily combine this data with other data breaches that focus on information that could be useful for identifying spies, such as the 2015 breach of the Office of Personnel Management, which processes the- <laughs> Which you and I were both part of. Right, we know all about that. Right? Our, our data is out there. knows more about me than anybody else in, in the world. <laughs> yep. Right? And so, I mean, you know, it, it's just brutal the amount of information they collect on people that have security clearances and that they know everything about you. Everything about you. I'm when I say everything, I mean everything. Yep. And, and you and I were both in that database. Not, yes. happy, not, happy, not happy with that situation no, at all. Not a good thing. And, no, and it's, uh, it's all too real right now, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, it, the thing that really scares me is I think this could be a huge impact to our intelligence community because, you know, what happens is we have, uh, you know, CIA and NSA operatives who go out there and recruit spies from other, other countries with human assets. And so current spies, these current human assets are at risk because now if you can start identifying through all this data who likely is to be working for an intelligence agency of the U.S. government, you can then start to identify those who are talking to them or interacting with them and, and see that they're potentially a spy. Um, and then any future spies. So we rely on people coming to us and giving us information and working these human assets. How do you work the human asset when word gets out that pretty much all the spies have been, all the operatives for the, you know, our intelligence agencies have potentially been identified? Like, why would you take that risk? So even though I normally would have taken the risk before, I'm not going to do it right now. It's not worth it. I mean, we're not trying to scare the general public here, right? You know, scare the bejeepers out of anybody. But, you know, these governments are probably not interested in the average Joe. We know that, right? They're looking for people that have power, people that have influence. They're looking at, you know, people that have future careers in politics and people who might be overseas intelligence officers and people in United States corporate, uh, United States corporations that run data centers and maybe be senior financial executives of technology companies and I think uh, there's a good portion of our audience that, that, that falls into that category, right? I mean, that's what they're looking for here, right? I mean, not to scare the, 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 you know, the average person walking down the street shouldn't be going home and think, oh, my God, you know, Rush is in the house, <laughs> right? I mean, I well, you, know you know what, George? I, I'm going to tell you this, though. I, I agree with you to a point, but I don't know. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even say that anymore because you have an election coming up and you go attack all the average Joes and make it so their banks at work and they can't make their payments and can't make rent and you have chaos. <laughs> it, can, it can actually spin an election down. So I'm saying we don't know what they're going to do with this data. Like there's so many ways to go. I totally agree. I, I think that the, 
the you know, prevalent way to get information to things is, is the high end stuff. But man, yeah. you make, you make life miserable for most of the people who are basically living paycheck to paycheck and, 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 you know, you know, good farmers, good laborers, people who go in every day and make a God honest earning, you know, living here in the U S and they suddenly can't pay their bills. They can't get their bank accounts. That's going to have a huge impact on us. Yeah. I can't argue with him. And you know what it, it, it's like, what I go back to is we got to start thinking about things that we normally don't think about. Right. Yep. So normally it would be, okay, you know, and you know, process of elimination. These are the people that they're targeting. These yep. are value targets, return on investment, yada, yada, yada. But you're right. I mean, you know, you can't have a good point. We got to think about everything. We got to no. think about things we haven't thought about before. No, think about it. If you can't get the farmers to go, you know, produce this because they can't, you know, get the babysitting, can't get the gas, can't get the driving, it, it can shut us down. Now suddenly farmers aren't working the fields. We're not getting uh, the, the fruits and vegetables. You know, animals aren't getting fed. Wh whatever it be, you know, the, the union laborers who can't suddenly push cars down the, the, the factory line, all this stuff, you, you start impacting financially those people um, who are basically what makes our country uh, work. Uh, you know, because they're the ones who are doing doing the the labor, the work that you know, the like I said, what America is all about. Man, it could be a huge impact. Hey, Tom, thanks for rolling me, brother. I appreciate it. These are my <laughs> Thank you for having videos, me, man. It's a lot of fun. It always is. All right, brother. Thanks. Uh, we run out of time once again, folks. We got to bounce. Before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub, the reader recap of tonight's show, and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.